0: Our hope is that your walk with God will be strengthened and deepened, and both your understanding and application of God's Word will be enriched, and you'll be drawn to love it more and more each day. And now, here's Pastor Tom. Hello, friends. Thanks for
1: joining me today on A Word from the Word. Today is Part 8 in our series, Scrutinizing Scripture. Can We Believe Our Bible? In Part 7, History is His Story, we challenge the sometimes quoted statement, "'History teaches us that man learns nothing from history.'" We challenged this by underscoring how the Hebrew scriptures, our Old Testament, are a wonder and marvel according to Bible scholars and historians, in the sense that the Israelites had a knack, even a genius for constructing history, and that it's believed the Old Testament embodies the oldest surviving historical writings. We singled out Genesis chapter 10, highlighting the fact that it stands absolutely alone in ancient literature, without a remote parallel in other cultures." chapter 10, affectionately called the Table of Nations, remains an astonishingly accurate document. We also identified three key history recalling Psalms, 105, 106, and 107, and how they record Israelite history under the umbrella of the mighty acts of God, a repeated phrase with verbal variations that refer to the same idea. We even singled out the Red Sea Cross as the most significant, mighty act of God that forever etched in the Israelites' minds that they were a part of the salvation history plan of their God. As the Hebrew Scriptures remind us over and over, our New Testament also latches on to human history, not being mere history. Rather, biblical writers paint a picture that even history is spiritual. What unfolds is the revelation that the Bible writers were not just historians, but theological historians, as I call them, and as such, under the guidance and inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, arrange their truthful portrayals of history in such a way that through history, a deeply spiritual message comes to us humans. I even shared friends that our New Testament Well, let us abandon the role of history, recalling the first 17 verses in Matthew 1. We also reviewed how the New Testament writers wrote about their own Hebrew history, encapsulated in their time-honored scriptures, our Old Testament. We consulted 2 Timothy 3, Romans 15, and 2 Peter 1. We topped this all off with some key words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, for what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ... Christ... Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. Here, friends, it's clear that Paul understood the significance and the value of his own Jewish historical writings, as well as their spiritual significance to all humanity, Paul understood well, just as we Christ followers should understand, that biblical history records history with a purpose, history with a goal, a divine goal, if you will. And that human history is saturated with and enveloped with the will and workings of a divine mind, the divine mind of God himself. Friends, we as Christ followers today must have etched into our own minds that God has acted and still acts in human history in providential and supernatural ways. "...to reveal his power and authority in the lives of both people groups and individuals, therefore in the circumstances of life." And why is this important? We Christ followers must grab on to the idea that underlying all human history, there's a divine plan and purpose, so we can understand that, yes, there is meaning to all of life, no matter how mysterious it seems now. Well, friends, the uniqueness of this book of books, our Bible, this one-volume library we so easily hold in our hands— continues to astound us as we'll see today in part eight the greatest story ever told so friends imagine with me for a moment you live in a farming community you just happen to be out one day watching a neighboring farmer plow his field as it turns out you also just happen to notice a large ant-hill right in line with the next pass of the tractor and that the ant-hill will be totally plowed under And as weird as it may seem, you love ants. You finally find them fascinating. But this bunch is doomed. So you quickly drop to your knees and get your head as close to the ground as you can so you can warn them. You want them to realize there's impending danger. So you start shouting. But that doesn't work. After several attempts to warn them, nothing you try gets through to them. As you kneel there frustrated seeing the tractor barreling down the path, something finally dawns. You start yelling out to yourself, if only I could become one of them, then I could effectively communicate with them and warn them of what's coming. Friends, imagine if we could become an ant for a brief time and then return to being human. That would be a pretty incredible story, wouldn't it? We might even imagine it becoming the greatest story ever told. Stop and think about it for a minute. It would be the greatest act you could ever perform. It certainly could be considered the mightiest act ever performed by a human being. Well, friends, let's look at Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. One modern translation I like says, Long ago at different times and in different ways... God's voice came to our ancestors through the Hebrew prophets, but in these last days it has come to us through his Son, the one who has been given dominion over all things and through whom all worlds were made. This is the one who, imprinted with God's image, shimmering with his glory, sustains all that exists through the power of his word. He was seated at the right hand of the royal God once he himself had made the offering that purified all our sins. This son of God is elevated as far above the heavenly messengers or angels as his holy name is elevated above theirs. Remember, I introduced us to a new word last time, the word Heilgeschichte. Thanks to German theologians of a past generation, this word, meaning salvation history, has behind it the idea that God has acted and still acts in human history in a providential and supernatural way to reveal his power and authority. Are you thinking what I'm thinking? It's important to know and realize this because if history is really headed somewhere, if history has behind it the workings of a divine mind with a divine plan, and if history has a divine purpose, then we can be confident and certain that there really is meaning to life, meaning to our lives now because God is acting in our own circumstances right here, right now. Friends, our lives have meaning when God enters the equation of life. In these four verses in Hebrews 1, the writer of Hebrews, with virtually one broad sweep of the pen, recounts centuries of salvation history. Do we see this as we read it? And recognize or realize that the picture painted here is history guided by the salvation plan of God, culminating in a mighty act, if not the mightiest act, the Christ event. Now, perhaps you've not actually heard it called that, likely because this phrase, the Christ event, is common in theological circles. But again, I say it should not be limited to those particular circles, but a phrase that we as Christ followers should all become familiar with. The Christ event is a really cool phrase because it stands for a whole sentence of information. The Christ event refers to the birth, life, ministry, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. And let me just repeat that for you. The Christ event refers to the birth, life, ministry, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. And friends, as such, this Christ event becomes the greatest story ever told. The Christ event is the central proclamation of the gospel. And as incredible as it may seem that one of us humans could become an ant, God became a human being. He became one of us. Just listen to Galatians four four. And he came at the right time, when the time had fully come, or this may be worded, when the fullness of time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, a reference to the law of Moses, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive the full rights or the adoption as sons. Friends, do you recall what the angel said to Joseph when he found out that Mary was pregnant before they were actually married? Let's listen to Matthew one eighteen through 21. That contains his words. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged, or betrothed, a better word, to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus or Yeshua because he will save his people from their sins. Then Matthew explains, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. And this is Isaiah. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Do you see Heilgeschichte there, friends? Do you see salvation history there? Let me just take an aside here because salvation history is slightly camouflaged in two English words we need to break open. Jesus and Emmanuel. So let's peel back a few layers of the language onion and get to the Aramaic word Yeshua, the root of our English word Jesus. In this word, Yeshua, the Jews understood it to mean Yah saves or delivers. Yah is the poetic short form for God's covenant name for the Israelites, Yahweh. So our English word Jesus at the heart means God saves. Now, isn't that curious? Especially since it is the angel that names and defines Jesus' name. You are to give him the name Yeshua, because he will save his people from their sins. Hmm. Interesting, isn't it? Jesus' name means God saves. Yet the angel says, Jesus will save. Now, our second English word, Emmanuel, is also somewhat camouflaged in our English Bibles. This is the Greek version because it begins with an I, but the Hebrew begins with an E, so L, And the Hebrew word is actually two words, Emanu and El, E-L. Now, some of you may be familiar with God's names, like El Shaddai, which means God Almighty, or some other L words for God. And Matthew translates Emmanuel for us as God with us. So, friends, I propose to you that in these two names, Jesus or Yeshua and Emmanuel, we have the mission of Jesus declared and the nature of Jesus declared. The mission of Jesus is to save his people from their sins. Jesus then becomes the Savior, not only of the Jews, but all mankind. And the nature of Jesus is that God is with us. This is a firm declaration that Jesus is God in the flesh. Isn't it interesting, friends, that critics and skeptics invest a lot of time and energy and spill lots of ink trying to undermine two key historic and fundamental doctrines of the Christian church, the Incarnation and the Resurrection? The incarnation, if you will, the virgin birth of Jesus, is a theme prevalent during the Christmas season and through hymns like Silent Night, which says, Silent night, holy night, all is calm, all is bright, round yon virgin mother and child, holy infant so tender and mild. You mean to tell me that you believe that myth that a virgin conceived and gave birth to a Savior? There have been other virgin births recorded anyway, so Jesus' birth isn't that unique. Friends, see how critics attempt to downplay the miraculous? They strain to find natural explanations, for the supernatural acts or mighty acts recorded in the Bible. You see, the Bible is unique in its teaching of the incarnation. Therefore, other religious systems downplay that claim and introduce reincarnation. Or they introduce the idea that we can become gods ourselves or that we're already gods and just don't realize it. In other words, we're just ignorant of the fact. But our Judeo-Christian belief system is the only religion, so to speak, that claims that God became a human being. And it's this claim that critics seeks to undermine because this truth carries with it the fact that Jesus came to be a savior, forcing us to acknowledge our sinfulness. Just listen to some of the other religious notions of virgin births. Well known historical and mythical figures have claimed so called miraculous births. The Greeks claimed that Perseus was the son of Zeus and that his mother, Danae, was a virgin. The Greeks also claimed that Alexander the Great, son of Philip of Macedon and Olympias, was begotten by a serpent. The Romans believed that Caesar Augustus, the first emperor, and who sat on the throne when Jesus was born, was conceived by a serpent as his mother lay asleep in the temple of Apollo. A Hindu myth claims that Krishna, their lord, was the son of Davkai, a virgin. These ancient accounts, however, fail to compare with the historically verifiable birth of Jesus Christ – Conceived by the Virgin Mary through the power of God's Holy Spirit, Jesus is the Son of God and the sinless Saviour. The first fifteen verses of Matthew twenty eight detail a resurrection account that includes the Jewish leaders bribing Roman soldiers to tell and broadcast a lie. Matthew tells us this lie was circulated among the Jews to the very day he was writing his gospel. Concocting a lie indicated that a truth was being suppressed. Whereas the first key doctrine was the doctrine of the Incarnation, The second key doctrine attacked is the doctrine of the resurrection. Critics and skeptics and now liberal Christians have a field day here. You don't really believe that Jesus rose from the dead, do you? Those supposed resurrection stories were just legends woven into the gospel records many years after Christ's death by his disillusioned followers in order to keep his memory alive and so their religion wouldn't die out. Come on, we all know that Jesus was a great man, a great teacher, but he was just another sincere martyr who died for a good cause he believed in. Friends, there's a classic Christian song called Rise Again by Dallas Holm and later sung by the Gathers. Here's just a few of the lyrics. Go ahead, mock my name. My love for you is still the same. Go ahead and bury me. Very soon I will be free. Go ahead and say I'm dead and gone. You will see that you were wrong. Go ahead and try to hide the sun. All will see I am the one. Cause I'll rise again. There's no power on earth can tie me down. Yes, I'll rise again. Death can't keep me in the ground. This reminded me of Jesus' words in John 2.19. Destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. Thankfully, John adds a parenthetical statement clarifying Jesus' words, saying that he was speaking of his physical body. Friends, as I said earlier, critics and skeptics have a field day with the resurrection of Jesus. All kinds of elaborate theories have been proposed to explain away the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Any intelligent and rational person who truly wishes to search for the truth of the matter can think of it this way. The quintessential question becomes, was the tomb of Jesus occupied or empty? we have only two choices either it was occupied where these theories erupt the unknown tomb theory the wrong tomb theory the legend theory the spiritual resurrection theory and the hallucination theory or the tomb was empty here we also have two options either the tomb was empty due to natural phenomena which gave birth to these theories Jesus' body was stolen by his disciples. Jesus' body was stolen by the authorities. The twin brother theory, the swoon theory, Jesus only fainted on the cross, the Passover plot variation of the swoon theory, and the theory of other religions, such as the Islam theory or the Jehovah's Witness theory. Or the tomb was empty due to a supernatural phenomenon. This being, Jesus really rose bodily from the tomb. If this is true, then Jesus really did rise again. So we declare, he is risen. This brings us full circle, friends, to Heilgeschichte, to salvation history, another record of the mighty acts of God. Who better than the Apostle Paul, former Pharisee, former despiser of the emerging church, former accomplice to those who imprisoned and executed believers that Jesus was the Messiah, who died and rose from the grave, who then curiously came over to the other side, crossed the aisle, so to speak, and suddenly began preaching that which he furiously objected to for so long." All of a sudden, Paul joins the budding messianic movement and begins preaching its single message. He recalls the significance of his own historical writings, known by us as our Old Testament, and connects the dots that his God, Yahweh, has acted in history and still acts in history. Paul realizes that his own Hebrew scriptures have predicted this mighty act of God... For centuries, in First Corinthians fifteen three and 4, he says, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. And so, friends, the incarnation and resurrection of Jesus certainly become the greatest story ever told. Amen? Amen! Well, friends, we're at the end of today's program. Our broadcast will close with an email where you may write me. I'd love to hear your feedback on the programs in this series. One listener recently wrote in and said, Pastor Tom, what a great series of messages this has been on scrutinizing scripture. Some of these historical truths of the foundation of our faith, the Bible, I may have heard long ago and many had not. Truly refreshing. I'm sure it's given encouragement and insight to others, as it has me. Well, thank you for those uplifting words. And if a word from the Word has blessed you, please consider becoming a support team member. Just ask for the details. Listeners like you help keep this program on the air. Well, Thanks for listening today, friends. And remember, Jesus loves you. I'm Pastor Tom with a word from the Word.
0: Friends, if you would like to let Pastor Tom know what this program has meant to you, email him at a word from the Word at minister.com. That's a word from the Word at minister.com.